In the midst of an increasingly pluralistic and multicultural world, there is so much that divides us, isn't there? And yet, in the midst of all of these differences, there really is at least one profound longing that binds us all together. Whether we are black or white, yellow or tan, whether we are computer-capable or internet-clueless, whether we are young or old, rich or poor, tall or short, male or female, there is this common yearning that links us all. It's a longing for evil's end. When we open up the morning newspaper and see there that researchers have made a a wonderful breakthrough in the treatment of a deadly disease, when we hear that the peace talks are, are finally progressing now or that a rapist has been caught and sentenced, when we learn that a broken relationship that everybody had given up on had has somehow been healed or that a, a battered child has been rescued, all of the differences that, that divide us normally are suddenly eclipsed by this one common shout, hooray, for everyone longs for evil's end. Whether we think of ourselves as religious or not, most of us cling to this hope that there might yet come a day when all of the traces we associate with the evil and the wrong will dissipate and disappear. We cling to this hope that there might come a time when swords are beaten into plowshares, when the dangerous lions of this world lie down peaceably with the innocent lambs. When justice will roll down like a a mighty stream that washes the worst of this world away and and there will be no more tears and, and no more bloodshed and no more heartache. Christians are united within the larger community of humanity by this deep conviction that that hope is not a fantasy but that that day will one day come. And much of of their vision for life, their courage to live in the battles and struggles of the present comes from that confidence they have that one day all of the evil of this world will be utterly consumed in the blaze of God's final intervention in human history. That confidence springs from the promises they read in God's Word. And specifically from the assurances, the pictures they gain about the end of history in this last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. As I've suggested frequently in recent weeks, every single generation of believers has been able to see in their own time current historical figures and phenomena that corresponded chillingly at times with many of the characters and the conflicts that are described in the 
images and symbols of this book. That really shouldn't be surprising if you think about it, for Revelation is Christ's attempt to give his followers a vivid picture that will capture their imaginations and inflame their courage and will concerning the spiritual struggles that underlie all of human history. He's trying to alert us, to wake us up to the forces that fight in every age against God's intentions for humanity, against His desires for our lives too. And Jesus is trying to encourage us to stand strong against the pressures. Against the pressure that evil puts against us, attempting to diminish our love and decay our hope and distort our understanding of the great truths about life and disfigure our moral character and the image of God in us. But the clear message of this book is that one day the struggle with evil will end. And in the last days of history, says Jesus, the great battle that's been going along through the ages will intensify and then come to a climax and then finally be resolved. The precise order and way in which this ultimate resolution occurs is a matter of some lively debate within Christian circles these days and for many years. There are at least four different major schools of interpretation as to what Revelation is really saying about how the final chapters of history unfold. And those different viewpoints depend a lot on whether the symbols and the numbers in Revelation are viewed literally or figuratively. Whether we look at Revelation as a timeline, a linear progression of events and happenings, or instead more like an ocean of imagery, where each wave washes higher on the shores of our imagination, conveying the great themes of God's action. Now the four different schools of interpretation go by the names post-millennialist, historical premillennialist, millennialist, dispensational millennialist, and amillennialist. Say that four times fast. I wish our time today permitted a thorough review of the depth of thinking that conscientious Christians have put into coming up with each of these points of view, but our time doesn't permit it. I, I can only commend that you do some further reading yourself on the subject. You can pick up through our Christ Church bookstore a wonderful little booklet called The Christian and the Millennium that, that will be helpful in understanding these different ways of looking at this book. Because so many people have recently read the Left Behind series of books, let me just mention that those works are based on the dispensational premillennialist viewpoint. 
And while I appreciate greatly how those books have so wonderfully brought to life many of the great themes of the book of Revelation and put them in modern terms, let me confess that I, I personally believe the amillennialist model demonstrates and bears better biblical support. At the core, however, it is not what all of these four systems of thought say differently that's significant so much as what they do say in common. And I want to hold up today those set of beliefs as something that you may take with you as you go from here today. In the first place, Christians share a common belief that the outworking of God's purposes takes a very long time. And that length of time is suggested by the term the thousand years that is mentioned in Revelation chapter 20 and from which we get the term millennial that is embedded in the names of all four schools of interpretation I've mentioned. Now some Christians see the millennium as referring to a literal period of a thousand years, chartable on a calendar. I, for one, read the thousand years in more figurative terms for the simple reason that in apocalyptic literature, numbers are meant to be taken symbolically. The number seven or the number 12, for example, any multiple thereof, intends to suggest a roundedness a completeness, a fulfillment of God's purpose. And like those numbers, the number 10 in Scripture is always suggestive of that kind of completeness. And 10 times 10 times 10, i.e. a thousand, simply suggests, I, I take it, a very long period in which God is completing His purposes. The thousand years are thus merely a poetic way of describing the great space of time and activity between the decisive coming of Jesus the first time and the decisive return of Christ the second time. Between the, the D-Day in which Jesus dramatically engaged evil in his first coming and the final armistice that Jesus will accomplish at his second coming. The Gospels suggest that in his first coming, Jesus clearly cast down and bound Satan, limited his influence, crippled him. This may be what Revelation means by Satan was cast into the abyss and, and bound. Like Hitler after D-Day, Satan still has the capacity to make a certain amount of mischief, but he can no longer completely deceive the nations, as the book here suggests. For the light of the world has come, and the truth and grace of God will extend, will be proclaimed. As Martin Luther puts it, evil's doom is sure. Others see the 1,000 years as referring to a period following the second coming of Christ. 
They believe it's a time when Jesus will reign on a a literal throne in Jerusalem assisted by Jewish and Gentile converts. Revelation 20 plainly does speak of, of thrones on which will sit those who came to life and reigned with Christ, it says. But whenever thrones are spoken of in this book, as we've seen in other lessons, they're always in the context of the halls of heaven. And for this reason, among others, I believe the image we're being given in Revelation 20 is not of some millennial earthly reign to come, but is rather a picture of the spirits of those deceased Christians who reside around the throne of heaven with Jesus Christ waiting for the final resurrection and judgment. These are the blessed ones, Revelation 20 speaks of, who will not endure the second death. Christians agree uh, not only that it takes a long time for God's purposes to be fulfilled, but secondly, that the period between Christ's first advent and his second coming will be marked by certain recognizable signs. Signs of the times, as Jesus put it. And described in some measure in the book of Revelation and other portions of the New Testament. What are those signs? Well, one is that the gospel will be preached progressively to all nations. Everyone will have a chance to hear the message. The second is that believers and the world at large will face much tribulation, many struggles, conflicts, traumas, as the dragon, i.e. Satan, still thrashes his tail in his death throes, and as God pours out a whole variety of judgments on sin in the hope that more people will turn to him. And find life. There will be in these last days great apostasy in the church. That is, distortion of the truth and moral decay amongst believers. And in the world at large, outside the church, there will be even more pronounced rebellion against the authority of God. And in those last days, powerful instruments, be they individuals or institutions, they're called by the Antichrist, beasts, um, spiritual prostitutes, unholy cities in the book of Revelation. All of these instruments of evil will rear their ugly heads and do a considerable amount of damage. Then, thirdly, Christians unite in affirming at the end, Jesus will come again. And in a decisive battle some have called Armageddon, Jesus will decisively establish his authority on earth and resurrect the dead to new life. Christians share, fourthly, a common belief that at the time of Christ's return, those Christians who are still alive, who have not died during the tribulation or before, that those living Christians will be 
raptured. That is, raised to meet the returning Christ. Now, now here is where there's some discrepancy and debate within Christian circles as to exactly what that means. There are some interpreters that say that Jesus will come partway down from heaven in order to take Christians, levitate them off the earth, and and take them back up in a U-turn move up to heaven with them and spare them from having to go through the terrible tribulation upon the earth, only to return himself later at a different time, seven years later, to rule on the throne in Jerusalem with the Jewish converts. Now, I'd love to think that was exactly what happened. I'd love to think there's an escape plan for any of us that are still alive during the tribulation. But I've got to tell you, having searched the scriptures on this one, I I think it's a stretch. I think that this interpretation is based on a very questionable reading of an obscure passage in the book of Daniel and a frank misreading of a passage in Thessalonians. As frightening as this sounds, the biblical evidence much more pervasively and persuasively suggests that those Christians who are still alive during this intensified period of tribulation at the end will simply be asked to endure it. Jesus so many times in the Gospels told his followers, That if they have persecuted me, the Son of God, how much more will my followers be persecuted? He even said that if it were not for the fact that God in his grace will cut short the time of great tribulation, no Christian could survive. And so when 1 Thessalonians 4 speaks of of Christians hearing the sound of a trumpet and going to meet the Lord in the air, something beside an escape hatch is is meant. And the meaning is found in the translation of that Greek term that is rendered here, meeting the Lord in the air. It's it's a term that's used lots of times in New Testament context to describe the act by which a people would go outside of the walls of their city in order to greet a visiting dignitary. And then having welcomed him, come back into the city, offering him a place of honor in their midst. That's the vision we're given, around which I think a distorted rapture theology has been built. That when Jesus comes again, it's not to levitate us off and out of the program. It's instead to, to, to greet us, and then as we meet the risen Christ, the returning Christ, to welcome him back to earth make him the host and the center of our life forevermore. Fifthly, Christians in all four schools of interpretation believe that Revelation clearly speaks of a day of judgment to come for those whose names are not written in God's book of life. 
I really wish there was a way to dismiss this part of the Bible's teaching. I've looked for ways to do it. But the teaching is, is so clear, so repetitive in chapters 19 and 20 of this book and elsewhere in the New Testament. I've not been able to, to find a way out of it. The patience of God is legendary. <laughs> the graciousness with which God gives people thousands of chances to respond to Him, to turn their lives over to His Lordship. The length of time, a thousand years and more that He gives to humanity after His initial coming to, to wise up, to come to their senses, is just amazing. And although I've got to say that there are some readers of this book that suggest that after the second coming of Christ, there'll still be another chance for people to wake up and repent and turn to Christ, I can find no solid biblical evidence for that. And I've wanted to find it. Every chance that, that we can get. The Scriptures suggest that when death occurs for a human being, or when Christ returns, whichever happens first. I vote for him coming back first. Um, the door of opportunity closes. And those who have rejected the authority of Christ, the leading of, of God in their lives, will miss out on the opportunity for the world that is to come. And it makes sense because that whole world to come is all about the Lordship of Christ. It's all about glorifying, celebrating, serving, submitting, surrendering to Christ. And those who have rejected that vision... Of, of, of five minutes could never bear eternity of that kind of vision. And so those beings, whether they be angelic or human, will spend eternity instead in a place which Revelation calls the lake of fire, or which was called in New Testament times Gehenna, the trash heap, which we just call hell. And the precise nature of that place is the subject for a discussion of a, another day, but suffice it to say that this is a place that no one wants to go to. And no one has to. Beloved, this is the good news. Shouted through the New Testament and screamed through the book of Revelation. God has a passion that no one should perish. That everyone should go to, not to the kind of place described in chapters 19 and 20, but to the kind of place that, that we'll see described in chapters 21 and 22. And, and that is the sixth and final message of Revelation upon which all Christians agree. Those who surrender to the authority of Christ in this life will spend eternity with in an utterly redeemed and renewed earth. 
What is that new creation like? And what does knowing something about it tell us about God's vision for our lives today? Well, that's where we'll pick up the story next time. As we move to study the very last chapter of the book of Revelation. And I hope you'll join us. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we thank you for your patience. We thank you that you wait such a long time and seek in so many ways, some so easy to receive and some so tough, to wake people up and bring them to you. We give you thanks that you have given us signs to mark the unfolding of your plan, to sober us up, to help us to take seriously the privilege of life and the opportunities before us. We thank you, Lord, that you're coming again and that you will resurrect the faithful to new life. Equip us with bodies that don't let us down and fail and fragment like the ones we have now do. That you will bring about evil's end and the start of a glorious new creation. We know, God, it's your desire that no one should perish. And so we ask for even greater courage and grace as we seek to bear witness of the hope that lies within us, to extend invitations to the precious people around us to come and know more of you, to find that sweet joy that is there in surrender to your service. For this we pray in the name of Christ, our Savior and King. Amen.